Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the 300th episode of My Time Capsule. Yep, 300 episodes. And my name is still Mike Fenton-Stevens. And if you don't know what this podcast is about, where have you been for the past 300 episodes? But just for you, yes, you, My Time Capsule is the podcast that asks its guests for four things they love and one they hate from any time in their life to put in a time capsule. It's as simple as that. Of course, you may be asking how on earth we managed to stretch that format to 300 episodes. (laughs) I often ask myself the same question. Well, it's basically because of our guests. People like the very special guest for this very special episode, who is the comedian, writer and crossword setter, Dave Gorman. Now, this episode is extra special because it was recorded live in front of a huge audience inside a very large, very hot tent at Kite Festival in Oxfordshire. In fact, you'll almost certainly be able to hear the sweat. Still, thanks for Kite for letting us come along and do this. Dave Gorman started stand-up in 1990 after dropping out of his mathematics course at Manchester University. After a few years on the circuit, writing work started to come in on shows like The Fast Show and The Mrs Merton Show. Dave became known to a wider audience with the success of his show, Are You Dave Gorman?, in which his flatmate and former guest of my time capsule, Danny Wallace, bet him he couldn't find 52 other people called Dave Gorman. The show was nominated for the Perrier Award, won the HBO Comedy Jury Award for Best One Person Show at the US Comedy Arts Festival, and was subsequently made into a BBC Two series, The Dave Gorman Collection, and a successful book, co-written with Danny. His second TV series, also broadcast on BBC Two, was Dave Gorman's Important Astrology Experiment, a cod scientific test to see if he could improve his love, health and wealth if he followed his horoscopes. In 2003, he embarked on another bizarre quest, this time tracking down people responsible for Google Wax. 
a search term consisting of two words that produces one single result when entered into Google. The show spawned another best-selling book. Dave hosts the Radio 4 show Genius, which transferred to BBC Two in 2009. He was a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart in America, has been in Absolutely Fabulous, Rob Brydon's Annually Retentive and QI, amongst others. He's also hosted the very popular TV show Modern Life is Goodish on Dave for five series. In 2020, he began setting cryptic crosswords for three British newspapers, The Independent under the pseudonym Bloof, then The Daily Telegraph under the name Django and The Guardian under the name Fed. His latest stand-up show, PowerPoint to the People, has just finished a sell-out national tour, which John, the producer of this podcast, and my son and I were lucky enough to see. His intelligence, wit and control over his audience was a masterclass in stand-up. But what will Dave Gorman choose to go into his time capsule? Well, loosen your clothing, pop on your shorts and let's join the sweaty live audience at Kite Festival to find out. Please welcome your host, Michael Fenton-Stevens. Thank you very much. Lovely. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you for coming. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, Philip Schofield has got to pieces, isn't he? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, as mentioned, and I do a podcast called My Time Capsule. Now, if you don't know what it is, it's very simple. I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life, anything at all from any time in their life, that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish or would like to have again, and one thing that they wish they could put it in there so they can forget it. Something they want to bury and never talk of again. So would you please put your hands together for the fantastic Dave Gorman! Hello! This is nice. Oh, Dave, welcome. You've it, only just got here, haven't you? I have only just got here, yeah. I was in Stevenage last night and I'm in Oxford tonight, so it's a very convenient little detour. And I'm genuinely very excited to meet you, Mr. Fenton Stevens, a huge fan of your work, Radioactive and, and Don't. All, all that stuff. Hugely influential and um, <laughs> I can touch you. That's exciting. You can do more than that if you like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I mean, I have to say, I've been here since Friday. I've had a fantastic festival. You've met some great people, Dave. We had Joan Collins here yesterday. I love it. Joan Collins was here, and strangely enough, I've worked with Joan Collins. Have you? Yeah, I was in Benidorm. I was in that, and I, um, I got to sing karaoke with Joan Collins, which was great fun. And I met her yesterday out here, and of course she knew me by the character I was playing in, in Benidorm, which was Sir Henry. So I said to her, hello, Joan, and she said, ah, Sir Henry, how are you? And I said, we chatted for a bit, and then the person who'd been on this stage before that, John Major, wow. walked up to us and said, I'm terribly sorry, um, uh, Joan, Joan, how are you? How lovely to see you again. She said, hello, John, how are you? Do you know Sir Henry? <laughs> and John Major said, oh, yes, of course, how are you? <laughs> They're all frauds. All Amazing. I, I almost met John Major many years ago. Yeah. This is going to sound so like I'm bigging myself up, and it's, it's not that. So I was doing a little run off Broadway in New York, and I had a weekend off, and my management persuaded me to fly to L.A. to take some meetings with TV people that were clearly not going to go anywhere. So I was staying in L.A. I was actually staying at the home of my L.A. manager, who's a friend of mine called Julie. 
My English manager had flown out for these meetings as well. And the man who ran the agency happened to also be in town as well. And they were staying at the Four Seasons Hotel. As you do. So we'd gone for a drink at the Four Seasons Hotel on my last day before taking a red-eye flight back to New York. And it's just four of us having a little drink. And opposite us, we're in a little booth. In a booth opposite us comes in Seal (laughs) and two or three supermodels. (laughs) And they sit directly opposite us and they immediately get given, uh, like, free champagne and all kind of stuff. So we're just sitting there chatting. Julie, who's sitting to my left, is a huge fan of Seal, is going, it's Seal! (laughs) Seal! Rob's quite excited. John, never heard of him, doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) After a little while, we're chatting away, and Seal goes, Oi! You English? You sound English. Go, yeah, I am, yeah, yeah. He goes, oh, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm just doing some meetings and stuff, you know, nothing really. He went, who are you? And Julie went, um, I'm, I'm his manager. He went, right, who are you? And Rob went, I'm, I'm his manager. <laughs> went, and who are you? And John went, I'm, I'm his manager. <laughs> so I look like a big-time Charlie in this L.A. hotel, and I'm not. <laughs> He goes, have some of our drinks, they're giving us free champagne, have some fucking champagne. And he starts being the host, and we're having a great time. Then John Major walks in. <laughs> so I'm having a fever dream at this point. I'm with, I'm with Seal and Supermodels, and John Major's walked in, and I'm on free champagne. And Seal just goes, hey, it's buddy John Major. I'm going to go and have a chat. <laughs> and off he goes. So now I'm... Al- I should point out, my management have all left. I've just been left alone with Seal and the supermodels. And now I'm alone with just the supermodels because Seal has gone to have a word with John Major. All right, ten minutes go by, we're having some drinks. It's all very lovely. And then Seal comes back, he just goes, John Major, Brixton boy, he's sound. Brilliant. And that's, that's who he is for me now. He's sound. He's a Brixton boy. <laughs> so we both almost met John Major. <laughs> Surprisingly, a lot taller than you'd think. You think of him as the little spitting image character, don't you? No, I think of him as a sound Brixton boy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Dave, well, so we should do what we're supposed to do, which is we're yes. going to talk about things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule. Yes. Uh, how's it gone, thinking about them? Um, I've, I've thought of a few things. I've got, I've got options, so I'll see how I feel as we go through it. All right. Um, but I can tell you my first one, if you like. Yeah. Uh, my first one, it's a feeling. I would like to bottle a feeling. I don't know how I would put that in a time capsule. Uh, I'm sure I can do it. It's the feeling you get when you jump out of an aeroplane for the very first time. <laughs> I, I, I've done a skydive. I've actually done two skydives. And it's very important when I say the first time. Right. Because you can't be repeated, which is why I'd like to bottle it, because... I tried to do it again to see if I could get the same feeling, and mm. I, it failed. It didn't deliver the same feeling to me. No. I was, did, it, on the second time, did you wear a parachute then? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bo- both times I did what is called um, a tandem dive. So you have a man on your back, and he has the parachute on his back. Yeah. And, and so you don't have to learn anything. You just jump out and free fall, and he controls everything and it is very exciting my in fact some people do get an erection <laughs> and i can tell you that he did um <laughs> it's it's, a, it's, a, it's just the most amazing feeling what i could the only thing i've had in my life that i could compare it to is i i had a car crash once and i almost died mm. 
And so the thing with the parachute, because you're, you're strapped to this bloke, you're in an aeroplane, you're at 20,000 feet. I did my first one in New Zealand. I was at the New Zealand Comedy Festival. A bunch of comics went out to do the skydive together, four of us. And as, as each person who did it had this adrenaline rush that the others couldn't relate to. And so it was one person did it, and he was all on his own, and then the second person did it, and those two were bonded in a way that the others couldn't, and then the third person joined the gang, and we just, like, it was the most testosterone-fueled, adrenaline-fueled thing. You're in the plane, they open the door, that's terrifying. Mm. You get to the edge and sit over the edge, looking 20,000 feet down to earth. <laughs> This is terrifying. It's also as far away as I've ever been from home because I've gone all the way around the world to New Zealand and then 20,000 feet that way. <laughs> and you're just terrified. And I think the reason that it's particularly terrifying, this is the feeling that I want, is when you jump out, it stopped being terrifying and it became divine in a way that I wasn't expecting. I sat right. there terrifying, never been more frightened in my life, and then I jumped out and went, this is amazing. Mm. And I had no fear whatsoever. And the thing I would identify was, was going on, I think, is while you're in the plane strapped to that man, you could still fight him and not do it. <laughs> You've still got a measure of control. And when you sit on the edge of the plane, I could give him one swift punch there, and I could crawl back into the plane, and mm. I could not do it. But once you've gone you have no agency left anymore. You have now succumbed to the fates. Yeah. And it's that feeling of succumbing and just going, this is amazing. And that's, I got it in that car crash as well. Because I, I was just me in a car and I aquaplaned. And so it was, a, there was, a, it was late at night. There was a pool of water this deep that I didn't look like it was a pool of water that deep mm -hmm. coming. And I hit it and my car started to skid. And I knew you meant to steer into the skid. And I tried to steer and get everything went into slow motion. I was fighting, I was fighting, I was fighting. I oversteered, I started going round and round and round, and I was fighting and I was terrified. And then I went, I'm going to die, and I gave up. And it was lovely. Mm -hmm. It was genuinely lovely. Yeah. Just to, I, I give in. I don't have to fight anymore. I give in to what is happening. And I loved it. Yeah. And you can't do anything to manufacture that. I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to go and have a car crash on purpose. <laughs> and when I came home from New Zealand, I raved about the parachute jump to all my friends. And another friend said, oh, I'm doing one for charity. Why don't you come and do it with me? And I went and did one near Morecambe. And I got in the plane with the man strapped on my back. And I wasn't terrified. And I got to the edge. And I sat over and I wasn't terrified because I'd no. done it before. And I jumped out and it was still fun. But it wasn't the same. Not the same thing. And I want that feeling again yeah because really fundamentally you are describing a situation where you say we jumped out of a plane but you were pushed out of a plane <laughs> yeah basically uh, but it was it, it's that giving in yeah. and not knowing what's happening next and it could go horribly wrong is the most joyful I think maybe the other thing would be maybe the very very first time I ever went on stage to do stand up as a 19 year old boy mm. that Except you do still have agency. When you've walked on stage, you are still in charge and it's still your choice about what you say next or whatever. But that feeling of this, is, this could go awful, this is awful, this is awful. I'm on stage now and it's not awful and I like it. Yeah. It's maybe there as well. So maybe three times in my life I've had something akin to that feeling. And it's, it's divine. I'm not religious, but there was something weirdly pleasing about just going, this could be the end and I'm happy 
with what I've done. Yeah, because at least I'm taking someone with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some New Zealand jock. <laughs> <laughs> but only the twice, though. You've only done it twice. I have only done it twice. I felt very bad. When I did the one in, in Morecambe, and it was for charity, I, I didn't ask any of my friends to donate because I'd spent a month going, oh, I did a skydive in New Zealand, it was the most amazing thing, it was the most amazing thing! And then going around them and going, do you want to give me some money for doing a skydive? <laughs> Didn't have the same kind of power no. of persuasion. And I thought, I can't, I can't do that. So I, I, I discovered, I can't remember how much it was, it was many years ago, but I think it was something like you had to raise 250 quid, and 100 quid went to the skydiving company, mm. and 150 quid went to the charity. So actually, you would raise more money for charity if you said, Can you, I'm going to raise 250 quid to do a skydive. I've decided not to do the skydive anymore. <laughs> Who wants sick kids to get another 100 quid? Yeah. And you could just give it all to them. So what I did, I got there and I wrote a cheque for 100 quid to the skydive people and I wrote a cheque for 150 quid to the charity and said, I'm, I, just, I couldn't ask my friends to pay for a thing that they know I'm hugely excited about doing. Yes. But it just, it just didn't have that same thing. Because I'd done it once, I sat on the edge of that plane... And I wasn't terrified. No. I had the knowledge. And that and, took and away you, that feeling. Are you feeling. fine with flying and all that sort of thing? I'm fine with flying, yeah. Right. I quite like flying. I once I flew to Belfast for a gig and I sat next to this elderly Irish woman. We'd never met. We just said hello. And we had said nothing else. And then as we went up the runway to take off, she gripped my hand <laughs> with such ferocity that she drew blood... Well, she said a prayer mm-hmm. as, we, as we took off, and I feel like she inoculated me against fear of flying. Yeah. I think something in that moment, I just went, this is ridiculous. Yes, I once yeah. did an advert in uh, Sweden, and my agent rang me and said, could you meet the actress who's going to play your wife at the airport, because she'd like to sit next to you. And I thought, OK, we can chat and what have you. And when I met her, I said, uh, you know, nice to meet you before we get there. She said, no, I really need to sit next to someone who's going to be able to deal with what I do. Oh, no. And I said, oh, are you frightened of flying? And she said, no, I love it. <laughs> I said, oh, why, why do you need me there? She said, well, I... If this isn't the story that ends with you joining the Mile High Club, it's very dis- <laughs> very disappointing build-up. Sadly, no. <laughs> no. But nearly. <laughs> because what... She liked it so much that she orgasmed. Wow. Mm-hmm. She's in an involuntary solo mile high club. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) She didn't even have to go to the toilet to do it. (laughs) On the flight back, I made an excuse and said, I have to stay in Sweden for a day. So she had to go back on her own. I really think the bloke sitting next to her must have thought he was magic. (laughs) Okay, Dave, we're going to put that feeling... Of, uh, of leaving an aeroplane and suddenly having no power <laughs> yeah. but a very large man clinging to your back. Yes. Uh, we'll put that in as the first Thank item. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mike. That's good. So what's your second thing? Uh, uh, my, my second thing is, um, it's a very particular thing. I need to, I need to sort of create it. Um, it's, it's a cryptic crossword, uh, but when you solve it, some of the clues will spell out the message, the gold is buried in Rob Beckett's garden. <laughs> Um, which I've chosen because I love cryptic crosswords and have loved them all my life. You write them, don't you? I I now set them professionally, which Mm. is a very weird thing to have happened to me. Um, I'd always sort of thought I might do it as my retirement gig. 
I thought, when I'm an old man and I've given all this up, I'll sit in my shed and I'll see if I can become a crossword setter. And then COVID sort of put me into that early retirement yeah. where for two years I couldn't do anything and my, my sort of back of my mind retirement plan kicked in and I became a crossword setter and then COVID, you know, we're now free to do things like this and I still carry on doing it. So I've sort of accidentally enacted the retirement plan early mm. and I set crosswords now for the Independent and the Guardian and the Telegraph occasionally. Well, come on. Um, no, I mean... And, uh, they, they bring me great joy as a thing, and they always have. As a, as a 12-year-old, I was very curious. I was always interested in everything, and I, I saw this thing in the newspaper. No one in my home did them, and I saw the clues, and it made absolutely no sense to me, and I thought, I don't like not knowing what this is. Right. And so I started holding on to yesterday's paper and going through the answers on today's paper <laughs> and slowly reverse-engineered what was going on for myself. So I sort of... It was the equivalent of taking a radio apart and putting it back together as a teenager. That's what I did to cryptics. In, mm. in, you know, I'm sure my mum was glad it wasn't an oily motorbike or whatever. It was just words. And I, I sort of worked it out. And... As someone who travels a lot and trains and planes a lot, it's, it's my way of having a companion when I'm by myself. It's a thing that you take with you, and it's just your company for the day. Yeah. And the person who set it is trying to help you to solve it. It's not meant to befuddle you. It's meant to amuse you and delight you. And it's like having a friend jockeying you along. And it is also it's a, it's a great sort of entree in certain social situations. I, I'm, I'm not an actor, uh, but I've done two acting gigs in my life. One of them was Ab Fab. Right. I was very young, I was very nervous, I'm not an actor, but you don't say no when Jennifer Saunders asks, will you be in no. an episode of Ab Fab? Right. So I've gone along to do this thing. The main episode was set in Paris. The first scene we filmed was in Paddington on a, a, a disused train lot or something, mm. where we're all sat on the inside of a train and some men are jockeying it a bit and we're filming as if we're on the Channel Tunnel whatever. I'm playing a photographer called Rimmer. Sitting across from me, as a table of four, are all the Jays. It's Jennifer and Joanna and Julia and who played Bubbles, what's her name? Jane Horrocks. These four. And they haven't seen each other for weeks and they've just bonded again and they're so tight. And I'm not saying, I don't want to sound at all rude to them. They weren't paying me a great deal of attention, but why should they? I don't take any kind of offence at it. They were really close mates who've worked together forever. They've been away from each other for weeks. They've sat down on this train and it's all like gossipy, gossipy, chat, 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 chat. And I'm sitting on the other side of the train, and there's a camera in the way as well, so it would have been quite hard to try and bring me into the conversation and, mm. and do anything. And I'm nervous. I've never done this sort of thing before, and I'm trying to remember my lines, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm a bit out of my depth. And every time the camera stopped and they had to do a reset, Jennifer pulled a newspaper out, put it on the table, got the biro out, and started reading out clues, and the four of them would all join in and they'd solve the crossword. And at some point, she read out a clue... And I went, oh, that's an anagram. Uh, and I got it, and whatever it was, I said, oh, I think, I think it might be distilled. And they were like, oh, hello. <laughs> oh, you're here, are you? Mm-hmm. Right, join in. And all of a sudden, we went from being four and one to a gang of five. Lovely. And it was just the most joyous, lovely way to spend an afternoon. Two weeks later, or a week later, or whatever, we, we went to Paris to do the, the, the main body of the show. Mm. And... The main body of everyone was going. It was like I'd have to get up at five in the morning to make the train and, and go. And I wasn't being used in any of scenes on the first day of filming. 
So my agent's gone, can he go on a later train? <laughs> he doesn't want to get up at five in the morning. Let's put him on a 10.30 train. Like, it's a bit more civilised. You don't need him, it's fine. They're going, yeah, fine, no worries. So I think I'm travelling by myself. So I've turned up at the station and I bought The Guardian and The Independent thinking I'll have a couple of crosswords to do on the journey, it's mm-hmm. fine. And I'm standing at the platform and then I hear, oh, hello, darling. And I look round and it's Joanna Lumley. <laughs> And her agent had done the same thing, gone, you don't need her on the first day, you can put her on a later train. So we're both on the 10.30 train, and she's bought the Times and the Telegraph. <laughs> Which, if you profiled us both, we've both bought exactly the newspapers you would expect us to buy. Yes. Um, and so we, because we'd spent a day filming together, we knew each other, and, and so we sat down on the train together, and we did nothing but solve four crosswords. Brilliant. And we finished the fourth one as we pulled into the station in Paris. <laughs> and it was just like, I think I'm living my dad's wet dream. <laughs> I'm on a train with Joanna Lumley <laughs> doing cryptic crosswords. Um... This is joyful. But the, it's, it's a th- it's, it is best done as a social thing. I enjoy it for it keeps me company when I'm by myself. But it is also best when you're with people who do it. And yep. lots of actors do it, lots of performers do it, because they have lots of dead time and, and yep. stuff in, in green rooms and just sitting in trucks waiting to be called. So why do you want it to say that the gold is buried in Rob Beckett's garden? Mainly because it amuses me that uh, if this time capsule is dug up, people will then go and vandalise Rob Beckett's garden. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got no beef with Rob. I just imagine he's got an Essex pad with a nice garden. Yeah. And I think it would be fun to have his lawn vandalised because people think I've left some awful <laughs> criminal connection to the underworld in a crossword. With Rob Beckett standing at the back door at midnight going, Ah, oh, Gorman! <laughs> and it's not just because he beat me in Taskmaster. That's completely unrelated. <laughs> I bet. I'm very bad at crosswords. My father-in-law did them all the time and I'm useless at them because I don't get the clues. I don't get... What they're trying to help you with. Yes. But at the same time, I did once at university walk past some people who I think were a crossword club. Right. They read out the clue and I immediately knew what it was. It just clicked in my brain. And I walked past and said, uh, I think it's dustbin. And they went, oh, yeah, oh, and I was gone. I was gone as if, as if I was the god of crosswords. And you no, no longer need to visit crosswords at all, ever. Never come near them, no. I, I have a friend who has only ever thrown one dart in his life. And it hit the bullseye. And he went, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and he put the other two down and he walked off. <laughs> I don't blame and him. And he's got a 100% record <laughs> uh, hitting the bullseye. And he's really happy with that. Yes. And why tarnish it? Why tarnish that? My, my wife has no interest in crosswords whatsoever. This is the thing that pleases me a great deal. Uh, I, I met my wife when I was a guest on a radio show, and she was working on, on the show behind the scenes. Mm. Uh, she used to work for a man I'm sure you know called David Tyler at Positive yes. Productions. And, and he's a real crossword person. He's always... He whips the times off in 20 minutes on his way to work or whatever. He was a producer on Radioactive. Yeah, yeah. He's a brilliant, brilliant solver. Much, much, much better than I. And every time... I've done his shows a few times, and every time I've turned up to a show, I've got a paper under my arm, and we sit there and share a couple of clues and, and whatever. You find each other out if you're a crossword person. Yeah. He had employed uh, the woman who would later be my wife. She worked as a broadcast assistant on his show and, and in his office and whatever. Uh, and he'd always said to her, don't date comics. 
They're fly-by-nights. They can't be trusted. They've all got a girl in every town. Don't, I do not date comics. <laughs> uh, then I'd, I'd turned up and done one of his shows, and, and we met, and we just had a nice chat. We were both a bit early. We were the first two people there. Had a nice chat. Nothing happened for a year. We met again on, on the same show, and I was invited back, and, and that's when we started dating. And she very nervously said to David, I'm going out on a date with Dave Gorman. And he said, I always told you not to date comics, didn't I? And she said, yeah. And he said, Gorman's all right. <laughs> and I, I, it's like having a father-in-law look after you. I just yeah. like, he, he had a paternalistic role in her life. He, you know, she was in London and, and quite young, and, and he was a respected older man who would, was looking out for her. And to get the approval of her kind of de facto father <laughs> before I'd done it, but to try and help to oil the wheels, so keen on he was us two dating, that he gave her lessons in cryptic crosswords <laughs> before our first date because oh, he thought it him. would help. Oh, how lovely. And our first date, we went to a, a, a market in the afternoon and had a glass of wine and a chat and, and, and had a meal. And our second date, there was a lot of pressure on the second date because our first date was the 7th of February. And at the end of it, we said, oh, I'd love to do that again. Do you want to meet up? You know, how about next week? Yeah, let's do it next week. And then in the middle of the week, I realised our second date was Valentine's Day. <laughs> and how... Do you acknowledge that? Do you bring a card? Do you do a thing? It's just, it's all weird, and we both mm. felt that. Anyway, we turned up, and we just said we'd go and, and look at an art gallery and, and things. Uh, and so we met, looked around this art gallery, and there was a big picture of the sea, and she said, oh, I love the sea. And I said, right, let's go to Brighton. <laughs> and, and made myself look much more devil-may-care than I actually am, because I was desperately trying to impress her. So we whisked down to the train station and, and got a rail replacement fucking bus to, um, <laughs> to, to Brighton um, and it was a, a lovely day and then I, and, I, and we got a train back and on our train back I got the newspaper out and Beth pretended to like crosswords yeah. because David had given her enough knowledge mm -hmm. to do a little bit because he was thinking those two are actually quite good together. That, that's a good, good pairing. So that, that's how much it means to me that a, a man who I only know a little bit would go I'll teach you about this because that's going to oil the wheels of that relationship. Sweet man. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Well, he is a lovely man. Uh, has she ever done that thing? I've tried it with a number of people who are keen on crosswords simply because I like the joke. Yes. Uh, which is that you sit as if you're doing a crossword and you repeat to yourself, he delivers, doesn't he? Posty, he delivers, doesn't he? Posty? Um, and eventually you wait for people to say... How many letters? And you say, oh, thousands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's horrible. It's lovely. It is lovely. But no. No, no she loves no. you too much. She doesn't do that. What she does, because she... I, I don't... You know, we know where the boundaries are in our relationship. I don't talk to her about crosswords and she doesn't talk to me about the Great British Bake Off. You know, we, <laughs> we know we have fields of interest that don't necessarily always have to overlap. But occasionally... When she's drunk, she can do them. She has zero interest in it, pays it no heed whatsoever. Uh, and then we, we had an afternoon date. We have to have afternoon dates now because we've got a seven-year-old and we can hardly ever get out in the evening. But mm. occasionally when he's at school, if neither of us are working, we go and have a, a nice dinner and, and a glass of wine in the afternoon. Um, and we'd had a few glasses of wine and we were walking home. I had a crossword in that day in one of the papers. And she went, go on then, read me one of the clues. <laughs> and I read her one of the clues, and she 
guessed it like that. And we did it three times, and she guessed them all like that. And she doesn't know how she did it, and nor do I. <laughs> and she, she hadn't sort of done some cheat. I know she hadn't worked around it and found out the answer some other way. But when drunk, she sees through it in some magical way. Wow. The, the big key to anyone, and I'm not trying to persuade you to, to get into them. You, it's entirely up to you. It's either your thing or it's not. But they, they actually do all have, most of them have, a definition which is an easy clue mm-hmm. and then some wordplay. And I think what Beth was doing drunk was just going, I bet that last word's the definition. Is it ciabatta? <laughs> and, it, and she just was able to pick out which bit of the clue was... She was solving easy crossword clues because in her drunk state she could remove the bit that was the cryptic and leave just the definition. Yes. Yes, so, well, it's a good job you don't insist on that, though, because that's, that's a route to alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it yeah. Is, it's a thing that just has always brought me great pleasure, and it is ridiculous to sort of be invited into that world... Lovely. ..at a late stage in life, because yeah. I, I didn't think I was actually going to succeed at it. <laughs> well, you but should be very proud of it. We're going to put that in uh, to remind you of that, and also I'll put in one that you've never done, so if you ever open it, oh, you can you. have a go. Thank you, that's a nice Lovely. idea. Yeah. All right, that's yeah. two things we put in, Dave. So uh, do you want to pick number three? Yeah, I'm just working out which way I should go. Okay, I'm sorry, it seems rude to interrupt a live audience show and our 300th to boot, but we have to pause for some ads. We'll be back very soon. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Dave Gorman would like to put in his time capsule. I'm going to put in a tape recording. I've got a copy, but I can't find it. But I know it's in my house somewhere. A tape recording of me talking to Suggs, the lead singer from Madness. Yeah. Who were the biggest musical thing in my childhood. They, they meant so much to me as a child. Mm. Uh, I grew up with them. A lot of my musical taste sort of branches out from them, going back into sort of 60s scar and, and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't shown me the path to all of that, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're hugely influential in my life. I absolutely love them. Huge, huge fan in my childhood. I was at the Edinburgh Festival once, and I used to go on this local radio station on 4th FM with these two DJs called Mark and Ollie. And I'd become quite pally with them. We'd go out for a drink and things and whatever. And I was up there one year, and I got a phone call about eight in the morning from one of them saying, do you want to come to the radio station now? 
and at Edinburgh at eight in the morning, <laughs> and I was young. Mm-hmm. Now I've been up for three hours at eight o'clock. Uh, then they woke me up. Yeah. And I was grumpy. And I was like, no, I don't. What are you ridiculous? It's eight o'clock in the morning, I've got to go to bed. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, I think you want to come in. We've got Suggs coming in for an interview. <sighs> because they knew how much of a fan I was. I was like, right, I'm coming in. Grabbed a CD, because I, I had one with me of madness, and threw it in my jacket pocket and ran up to the radio station. I get there, and Suggs isn't there, and they're waiting, they're tapping their fingers, and he's meant to have been there half an hour ago now, and, mm. and time's moving on, and they're calling his PR, and his PR's going, right, we're in another radio station, it's running a bit late. We, we've got to go to Newcastle after this. And we, we're going to squeeze you in. We're promised going to squeeze you in, but we're just at this radio station right now. We're just finishing up. We'll be with you as soon as we can. We promise you. It's all fine. It's all fine. It's all fine. The two DJs have met him before. He's been on promo stuff up there before. And he, he likes a drink. And he likes hanging out in Edinburgh. And mm-hmm. they're thinking the ideal situation here will be Suggs misses his train to Newcastle and has to spend the night in Edinburgh. And we'll all go out on the shandy. And it'll be great because he's a great, <laughs> great company. And we like him and whatever time moves on they call the PR again we're still at the other radio station they go right we'll come and pick you up they no longer trust that he's going to get in the cab and come to their station on the way to the train station they think right we'll shortcut this we'll turn up and pick you up so we all go to this other radio station and sit in their lobby eventually Suggs comes out I don't think I'm saying anything untoward when I say you could see the vodka in his eyes (laughs) he'd already had a few (laughs) he is clearly angling to stay the night in Edinburgh His PR is absolutely determined we are getting this train to Newcastle. We've got four more radio stations to do this afternoon. We're Mm -hmm. not doing it. He's got a solo album to promote. So eventually, she kind of wins the argument. They go, right, we jump into Ollie's car. He's got a little white Ford Fiesta. Ollie's driving. Mark's in the passenger seat. Squeezed in the back seat is me, Suggs, his PR. We're driving along, initially to go to their radio station, and then the PR goes, we can't do this. We've got to go to the train station. We're going to miss our train. So Mark, in the front seat, throws a tape recorder into the back and says, Dave, you'd better bloody interview him. Oh, wow. I haven't seen the research. They haven't given me the, the new album. I haven't listened to it. But I'm a fan. Mm. So I start chatting to him about the influence and about Scar and saying, well, when Mark did his solo project, you wrote a song for that, didn't you? And sort of having that slightly geeky fan knowledge. And he's like whoa, that's not on the press release. How do you know that? And he starts chatting to me. That year, the show I was doing in Edinburgh was a show called Reasons to be Cheerful, which was all about the lyrics to the song by Ian Jory. And Mm -hmm. Ian Jory was a huge influence on Madness and was a good mate of theirs and whatever. And as we're driving along near Waverley Station, Sods goes, hang on, are you the bloke who's doing that show about Ian Jory? And I go, yeah, I am. God, I want to see that. Why did you do that? Which lyrics are you doing about? What's the thing? That night, they broadcast one interview of Dave Gorman interviews Suggs, and the next night, they broadcast Suggs interviews Dave Gorman. (laughs) Which, for the fanboy, I was just like, I can't... And in a way, I don't want anyone else to hear it, because I deeply suspect it's actually not very good. So I want it to be only me who can ever listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, and I know I've got it in my house somewhere on an old C90 that they oh. sent me, but I, A, don't have a tape player anymore, and B, I've no idea where it is. It's lost in the <laughs> no. morass of stuff. I'm not very good at collecting my own trophies as, as I go through life. Mm. Uh, but I would love to listen to it again, to connect to that feeling of youthful... I said to you before, in, 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 but I think it's really important, when you do this for a living you have to keep reminding yourself what the 15-year-old you would think about what you're doing. Yeah. And 15-year-old me 
I'm almost tearful even thinking about it. That's how much they meant to me. 15-year-old me knowing that I would be sitting in the back of a car interviewing Suggs. That's ridiculous. Mm. Somewhere there's a white Ford Fiesta he signed the roof. Um, <laughs> I doubt it added any value to Ollie's old Fiesta, but it's, oh, it's out wow. there somewhere. That's a beautiful thing. I nearly had my dream come true once, and it didn't. I, I got invited by a friend to go to watch Manchester United, which is my lifelong team. I was going to watch them play Crystal Palace. And then afterwards, we were going to have dinner with the team. And I was so thrilled. I hardly watched the game. I, it was amazing until just after half-time when Cantona jumped into the crowd. Oh, no! About five feet from me. No! And attacked the fan and was then sent off. And immediately afterwards, of course, they were all shoved onto a bus and drove away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, instead of thinking, oh, you know, thank goodness we won, or I hope they don't ban Cantona, I was thinking, I wanted to have dinner with them. Oh, mate, I'm so sorry. No, so, but I, I love the fact that you did manage to get yeah. that dream. I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. I have no, no antipathy. I, you're allowed to be who you are. Mm -hmm. and this is the ridiculousness of football fandom, because my dad wasn't into football, and the reason I'm a Liverpool fan is my older brother was, and the reason my older brother was is that a bloke that my dad played tennis with worked for the club yeah. and gave him pennants and stickers when he was a, a, an, an influential age. Yeah, there you are. Uh, and so we just followed him in it. And I'm deeply aware that if that man had worked for Man United, I'd probably be a Man United fan. If it mm -hmm. worked for Crystal Palace, I'd be a Crystal Palace fan. It's just who... That's how I happened to land, and it's brought me deep joy throughout my life. And I, I don't share that thing of where I'm meant to be rivals with people, because I sort of feel the fickleness of it. It's a bit like your religion. It's amazing to me that people of a faith are absolutely convinced that their faith is right and it just also happens to be the one that was shared by their parents and community while they were growing up. <laughs> and isn't that a stroke of good fortune? Um, and I, I sort of, I'm aware that it's a sort of weirdly fallacious idea and I don't feel any moral superiority to the choice I made or whatever, but I also can't shake it. But twice I've been in touching distance of Kenny Dalgleish, <laughs> who I, I couldn't... There's not a footballer I could, that could mean more to me. I know, than, we saw the court case. <laughs> but I, I've been unable to say hello. Mm. He means too much, and it would be such an invasion, but twice I've been there, and I just couldn't bring myself to say, excuse me, Mr Dalgleish, <sighs> and, and tell him how much he means to me, because mm. I can't do that. But that makes the Suggs thing even more special, because... Suggs is to music what Kenny Dalglish is to football in my yeah. head. And I can't force myself into those situations. I don't have that confidence and that feeling of entitlement or whatever. I've just never been that kind of guy. No. But to be forced into it is, is a deep joy. Yeah. It means something different. Yes, absolutely. The only time it's ever happened to me is I was standing at a urinal and Bobby Charlton stood next to me. <laughs> and uh, he said, all right, son... And I nearly pissed on his shoes. <laughs> so I completely understand it. I'm going to put that recording in. That's number three. That goes in. So we've okay. got two left. We've got one that you treasure, but we've still got the one you want to put in there yeah, and forget. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on to that, I have to tell you that I... And there's no more to this anecdote. It's just a sentence. Right? Okay. You can ask for no more details. It won't get better. But I once interrupted Tony Bennett pissing. <laughs> And I'll just leave it at that. That fact alone, I walked through a door, Tony Bennett was pissing, I shut the door and walked away again. <laughs> Tony Bennett. So we can move on to number three. Number th uh, Are we done three? So we move three. on to number three. I'm good at this, aren't I? 
Um, well, because I've, I've brought five things that I, I like and I wasn't sure which way to go. I think I'm going to say a piece of chalk, a piece of white chalk. Mm-hmm. And I feel so blessed by some of the teachers I had in my childhood. And the older I get, the more I realise how lucky I am and how, how transformative a good teacher can be mm. in your life. Yeah. Like, I, I still exchange Christmas cards with two of my high school teachers that my wife thinks is bizarre. She was <laughs> like, I, I didn't realise it was bizarre until my wife went, nobody else does that. No. I hated school. I have no fondness for my teachers. I don't have any communication with my teachers. You're still corresponding <laughs> with two of your high school teachers. I should point out, and I'm aware when I say that, some people will go, oh, we went to a public school, things are different there. I didn't. I went to the local comprehensive. Mm. I just got lucky with a couple of really inspirational teachers. Mm. Uh, there's Roy Sampson and Annabelle Whiting that I still correspond with. There, were, there are others that I, I'm really fond of. There was a... There was a maths teacher who was very austere, very strict, he took no nonsense. His name was Mr Morgan, and he was a brilliant teacher. And you know when you've had a bad teacher, you suddenly recognise how good the phenomenally good teachers are. Yes. One of the finest things he ever did, we were in a, a, a maths lesson, it was like, I was a bit of a, a geek of maths as a kid. I, degree level left me behind completely. I dropped out of university. It was completely mm. beyond me. Couldn't do it. But O level, A level, I could kind of blitz. We were in a kind of advanced, I don't know what year it was in, maybe fifth year, whatever. And there was a very, very, very complicated maths problem on the blackboard. And there were three potential answers. Mm. It was like 24,016, 24,018, 24,019, or something like that. And I didn't understand a single bit of what was on the board at all. And nor did anyone else in the class. And he said, does anyone know the answer? And one boy put his hand up. And he said, yes, Jenkins, what do you think it is? And he went, "Uh, is it 24,016, Mr Morgan? And he went, no, it's not. Anyone else? And I put my hand up. And he said, Gorman. And I said, is it 24,018? And he said, it is. Well done. How did you work it out? (laughs) And I said, well, I haven't worked it out, but I can tell from that bit that it's even, and you've just told him that it's not 24,016, and the other one's odd. So it has to be that one. And instead of getting a clip round the ear roll for being a smart aleck, he went, brilliant. Mm. That's how mathematicians think. Never, ever do more work than you're supposed to. (laughs) If you find a shortcut, you use the shortcut. That is brilliant. Yes. And that, I, I flinched sort of expecting to be told off for being a smart-ass and got told that that was the right way to think about maths. Mm. And I think this is one of the things... You, I meet lots of people in this job who do come from those public school backgrounds and, and many of them are very nice, uh, and that's fine. I feel it being... I'm lower middle class. I holidayed in a caravan in Wales. We had a car on the drive. We were all right, yeah. but we're lower middle class. That's where, you know, that's my background. We weren't struggling, but we weren't at that level. And I meet those people, and the thing their schooling gave them that I feel comprehensives don't always give people is a sense that you are allowed to be what you want to be, to go and strive and to succeed and to make something of yourself and to do something. And I feel like comprehensives kind of almost 
some bad schools are going, don't get above your station, mate. This is your place in life. And they're boxing you in a little bit. And the kids from that other side of the fence feel like they're told, go and be whatever you want to be. Be a movie star, be a thing. Go and be into the city. It's fine. The world's your oyster. Mm. And they believe that. And they march out into the world believing that. And I feel like Mr Morgan and, and Mr Sampson and Mrs Whiting were the people who helped me to believe I was allowed to be something other than what my town was trying to make me. Yes. Please. please. And I should imagine they were paid reasonably as well, which is... Uh, right. but yeah, they, yeah, yeah. But they were, always they were probably the... paid the same then as they're paid now. Quite, yes. It is always the ones I remember at the school, because I went to a secondary modern school. Yeah. I'd not even passed 11 plus. Right. So I should have been a failure. <laughs> and some people say I am. <laughs> yeah. But... The teachers I remember particularly are the ones who sort of said, well, you can find that out. I don't have to tell you that. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do other things. So we had an English teacher who quite often, in the middle of something, he would go, oh, this is boring, and he would go and stand in the cupboard. <laughs> and, and now, I remember those lessons, you know, every moment of those lessons, because yeah. you were waiting for him to do something completely mad. And I took in everything he said. That is good. There, there were you know, not... I mean, I feel genuinely lucky there were the two or three who were properly standout to me. Because I think, I think a lot of people would go, there's one teacher. Unfortunately, there are people who go, I, I just didn't have anyone who inspired me. To have three, I, I do feel is very lucky. I didn't realise this. I did, um, years ago, I, a few, two or three years ago, I did a presentation of an awards due for a teacher's organisation. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy who, called Jeff Barton who turns up on the news all the time as a spokesperson for teachers and he's high up in, in education as a kind of, I guess, a policy wonk or something, but you know, yeah. representing the interests of teachers genuinely. Mm. And it turns out he went to my school as well and he came up to me at this awards do uh, and he was taught by Roy as well and he's still in touch with Roy, uh, the English teacher. And I didn't realise this, but my English teacher, one of the ones I'm, I'm thinking of, he is actually an award-winning teacher. He has been rewarded. And, and so I just, you know, in a small town in the middle of England, did a comprehensive, happened to have a teacher who has been recognised as an exemplary English teacher and one of the best, and I just got lucky to be in his orbit for a little while. Yes. My and of course, it would have been a time when they would have, in a way, been able to choose how they taught you. Absolutely. Now that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. He, Roy uh, Sampson, the, the two of them, I uh, think of Roy and, and Annabelle Whiting, they were also both my, uh, I don't know if every school had this, but they were my tutor group leaders. So they were just a kind of pastoral care person. They were a person who was meant to be keeping an eye on you, making sure that things were right at home and, and you know, checking you'd turned up that day, and that was kind of it. But they're the two I still correspond with and, and have a, a genuine sort of friendship and affinity with. But my mum was a teacher. My, my mum refused to teach at the school we were at, right. which would have been the most convenient small town. It, you know, it was the one that we went to because it was local and it would have made her life much easier. Yes. But I've got three brothers and she just thought the idea of being a teacher at a school where I've got four children, well, it's just, I don't like that. So instead she worked at the, at the local Catholic school. We're not Catholic, my mum's not Catholic. So she, she worked at another school. I knew very little about it, except I was jealous because they had a day off when the Pope died. Um, I was a kid, forgive me. And, but my mum and, and Roy, there's something where life is to be enjoyed. And when I or my brother were off school sick, 
I was very good, very studious. Nick would have a bit of time off, and, and my mum would write him a note to say why Nick wasn't in, but she'd do it in limerick form, and he would reply in limerick form. <laughs> and that's how those two corresponded. Which Brilliant. sends some weird subliminal message that it doesn't all have to be fusty and things, and grown-ups aren't all uptight and buttoned up and whatever. Mm. And he showed, he had a, years later in the school, he got an office, and, but it was literally a stationary cupboard, and he just put some grand sign on the door calling it the, the August Strindberg Room or something. <laughs> and then you open it, and it was just boxes of A4. And he, was, he, just, he just wanted to garland his life with a bit of fun around right, and the edges. Yours. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Mr. Arrowsmith was my English teacher, and uh, I was a good boy at school, and I was told by the headmaster that he was going to make me deputy head boy. And, and it was prize giving and I'd won a prize and I went up we were told we were allowed to wear a suit rather than a uniform so yeah. I went in and for a laugh I thought it would be funny when I received it if I put my old school cap on now this got a big cheer from all the kids and I stood at the top of the stairs took my bow and got a big laugh and I thought that's great I went off and the headmaster walked straight up to me and said you will never be deputy head boy because I'd messed about but it's not as, even as messing left, about. It's ridiculous. As life I left, is for messing about in. That's, that's what, what life, life is, is for. Yeah. And as I left the, <sighs> the hall, Arrowsmith came up and called me. He said, I know what he said, but um, don't worry. It's very funny. You should be a performer. Wow. Yes. Have you ever told him that? Do you any way He's of communicating dead, with him? He's dead. No. I did go to his funeral, though. Because it yeah. means a lot to people when they find those sort of things out. My mum's a teacher, and every now and then I meet someone who was taught by her, and they always go, oh, your mum was all right. She was good. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I read books because of your mum. Uh, oh, what a lovely... And I always pass it on to her, and it swells her yeah. chest with pride. Yeah. I was so good... When I was at school, we, we didn't have prize giving, we didn't have those, we didn't have prom, we have proms and all that stuff now at school, yeah, so we didn't yeah. have any of that. <laughs> but they were starting to creep in when I was at school. And they started doing a thing where they were going to reward you for 100% attendance and have a little thing where people would come on stage and we were all meant to applaud them and whatever. <laughs> and I had 100% attendance at this point, and I said to Roy Sampson, who was my tutor group at the time, I said, if you put me down for that, I'm bunking off for a day. <laughs> because the last thing I want is to be walking on stage as one of those kids. Because it, it was that thing where, oh, you square, you're the spods, you're all right, you're not. School's a bit vicious, and like, what mm. gang are you in? And I was like, I don't want to be picked out as one of the kids who's no. bloody perfect, who turns up every day, and I'm not having it. If you put my name forward, I'm taking a day off. If you promise not to, I'll keep on turning up yeah. and he went yeah of course don't worry about it you know, like, he understood that that isn't yeah, something I would want to be picked out for brilliant Hated well let's put idea. him and the other inspirational teachers yes. into your time capsule it's fabulous so finally we have to put in the thing that you would like to forget yes um, the thing I would like to forget is very hard for me to forget because it is a tattoo <laughs> um, that is on my arm there um and I sort of, I'm now sort of largely able to live as if it doesn't exist. It doesn't trouble me as much as it did. Um, but I, I would like to have lived a life without it. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's not a nice tattoo. It's a Texas driving licence. <laughs> um, I'm... I, I was in Austin, Texas. I was sort of having a bit of a breakdown. Um, I went out to get drunk. There is that thing in a lot of American cities where the rules about age 
and proof of age are very strict. Mm -hmm. And no offence, but you could turn up at a bar in Austin and they would ask you for proof of ID. Thanks. I don't think it's a secret that you don't look 18 anymore, Mike. You are (laughs) a very, very well-preserved gentleman. You're looking absolutely dapper and handsome, but no-one thinks you're not old enough to drink. No. No. So, and nor do I. And nor did I then, and I, you know, I would have been 30 or something then, but I had a, a beard, and I, I did not look like I might be under 18 by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But I was trying to get drunk, and every time I walked into a bar, they'd ask me for ID, and I didn't have any ID, and eventually, in high dudgeon, I went back to my hotel, and I got my passport, and then I got drunk, and then I thought, I'm going to get some ID <laughs> that I can't forget. And a man... Ian hurts to say this. A man called Boo Boo. (laughs) Not even Yogi. (laughs) A a man called Boo Boo did that to my arm. At one point, the words were readable. They're not really readable anymore. The ink sort of bleeds and it gets worse as time moves on. Mm. It... It became part of a stage show, because the journey I was on was a part of a thing that became a show called Google Walk Adventure. And, and I went through this phase where two or three of my stage shows were basically documentaries about my life. And people always assume, at the back of your head, you go, yeah, but he did this to make a show. They don't think that this was your real lived experience. They <laughs> yes. think you were making choices, because it's on a stage and it's being funny. So he, clearly, he, this isn't really 100% true. He did this to entertain us. And this became a really powerful bit of theatre. In the middle of the show, I would tell that story, Mm. and I would show them that, and suddenly 800 people, or however big the venue were, would be going, oh, my God, this is real. (laughs) He didn't do this to entertain us, because nobody would do that for a joke. No. These things he's saying are true. And you could hear this huge penny drop and this huge noise would go up. And it was... I, my, my way of storytelling is I don't tell you how angry I was. I become angry while I'm telling you the story. Yes. I emote the emotions I'm not describing. I tell you what I was doing with the emotion I felt at the time. Rather than saying, I was as angry as a da-da-da-da-da, I just get fucking angry while I'm telling you it. <laughs> so at that point, I'm really full-on fury and there were people gasping, and I knew that some of them were thinking, that's not real. So I used to hang my arm off the stage and invite people to test that it was real. People drew blood. (laughs) People spat. People rubbed it. People would really go for it. And every single night at the end of it, I used to go out and do a little meet and greet after every show. There would be people coming up and going, yeah, but it's fake, isn't it? I go... You watched 30 people, 30 people from around a crowd rush the stage, scratch me, spit, pull it. just plants. Like I could afford 30 (laughs) plants. Like I could control 30 plants and also not let a stranger join the 30 plants. It was completely out with my control. It was just a thing and they would all, all go for it. And today, this, I did that show in the early 2000s, 20 years later, I still about, maybe now it's like three or four times a year, I get someone asking me, is your tattoo real? Yes. So it sort of lives on in a popular imagination, and I manage to forget it, and then a stranger goes, is that tattoo real? Duh. And I go, oh, and I'm back there again. And I forget it's there, 
most of the time. I was in Toronto, doing some shows in Toronto, and I'd gone for a swim in the hotel pool. And at this stage, I'd long kind of... I, I don't... I, I sort of... Even when I stand in front of a mirror, I don't see it anymore. It's sort of... I've, I've managed to kind of yeah. wipe it a little yeah. bit in my own head. I did think about getting it covered up. You can get other tattoos over it, but I'd have to have a whole sleeve to do it. It would have to be that big to, to do a proper cover-up of something. You could put it in a wallet. It would be much more... <laughs> get it all stitched out and get a skin graft to cover it. I mean, it. And when I've seen people who've had tattoo removal, it actually just looks like your skin's a bit out of focus. It doesn't look <laughs> real. But I was in this hotel in Toronto and I'd gone for a swim and I was doing that thing where I'd, just, I'd been doing a few lengths and I was having a little relax on the edge of the pool. And this guy swam up to me and went, whereabouts in Texas you're from? <laughs> and I didn't know why he was asking me. <laughs> I'd forgotten it was there. Uh... And I just went, I'm not. Like he was a complete idiot. <laughs> and, and he went, weirdo, and swam off. He didn't say anything. I mean, I could see in his eyes he thought weirdo, and he swam off. <laughs> and then I finished my swim, and then I went into the changing room, and I looked in a mirror and went, oh! Of course he thinks I'm from Texas. Idiot. It's just a, it's just a terrible thing to have blighted my, my life with. Mm. I feel slightly better. A, a friend of a friend, and I know that makes you think it isn't true, but it is true. Mm -hmm. A friend of a friend has got what I think is a worse tattoo, and it makes me very happy. <laughs> um, do you know the shop savers? Yes. <laughs> if you don't know the shop savers, the best way I could explain it would be if I said, uh, if Boots is BBC and Superdrug is ITV, Savers is Channel 5. <laughs> and this friend of a friend... And at some point you will feel, am I allowed to be amused or titillated by this because there's a dark side to the story? But it's fine. He gives you permission. It's absolutely... You don't need to feel any guilt. He has got a tattoo of the Savers logo <laughs> on his arm... And I know you think it isn't true, but I'll find a photo for you while I'm talking. Um, because, and this is the bit where you're going to feel, oh no, are we allowed to talk about it? His dad sadly passed away, and him and his brother had been going to the home where his dad was in his convalescence, and there was nowhere very near it, and so they used to hang out in Savers because uh, it was the only place nearby and then he needed a little break they'd go reminds into him of his dad. and it reminds him of his dad and he uh, knows that it's an awful tattoo and he knows that everyone else looks at it and goes that's weird mm. because it's the sort of thing even if you've worked in savers you probably weren't thinking that's my career I'm a savers for life <laughs> kind of, you know. what, what kind of Saturday boy would get a tattoo of savers like, he knows it's a thing that makes other people laugh and that's one of the things he likes about it which makes me like him uh, a great deal there um, in case people think I'm making it up. If I hold it in front of my face. Uh, bless him. Yeah, so uh, th that makes me feel a bit better about mine. Yeah, well, don't worry about yours, because it is going into the time capsule, it's going to be buried, and you'll never think of it again. Thank you. So That's there we are. That's the things for your time capsule. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you like it, my time capsule, we've got lots of other guests, many of them much better than Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's been a real joy to talk to the fantastic Dave Gorman, ladies and gentlemen. Thank, thank you. you, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Stevens. You have been listening to the 300th episode of My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Dave Gorman. 
Thanks for listening. And thanks to Kite Festival for being our host for this episode. Remember, you can listen to this podcast without ads if you follow the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Acast+. Plus. If you just subscribe to this podcast, we'll send you each episode as they become available. Please do rate or even review us if you have the chance. Rating is easy. You just click on five stars, hopefully. Reviewing might take a little longer. If you manage it, do send a copy to me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, where we will be able to tell you how much we appreciate it. The theme tune is available to download or stream on Spotify. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, Dave talking about the thrill of skydiving has made me remember this question, so I'll leave it with you to ponder. If Geronimo jumped out of a plane, what would he shout? Hmm. Bye. 